Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is Matt McKenna. Unfortunately, today I'm not joined by my regular co-host, John Lancaster. He is off doing his anti-imperialist covert work. I'm just kidding. Of course, he's signing a lease somewhere because he needs to continue (laughs) to uh, do this podcast with a roof over his head. But fortunately, I am lucky enough to be joined by Ben Norton, journalist for The Gray Zone, co-host of the Moderate Rebels podcast with Max Blumenthal, and someone I've wanted to talk to for a while. He shares a lot of our regular anti-imperialist views and just someone that is going to elaborate on some of the topics we've only barely touched on this podcast. So, Ben, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun to discuss. You know, before the broadcast, I was saying that, unfortunately, the issue of Yemen and, and the genocidal war that's been going on isn't really that sexy, so it doesn't get as much coverage, but it's an extremely important issue. So, thanks for having me on to discuss it. Great. Yeah, and absolutely. And we can't get enough people to talk about Yemen these days. I know a couple of days ago they had the National Day of Action. And, you know, some people are claiming that there was some success in in Joe Biden, uh, at least temporarily examining some of the weapon sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. But I think we need to examine that and we need to be skeptical of of intentions of Democrats um, and, and Republicans in this case. But I really do think that a lot more needs to be talked about here, and and we need to analyze some of the people involved in these decisions. But Ben, you know, before we get into some of your articles, which you've written so many of, and we want to focus on two of them here, I just want to get a feel for how did you get into this kind of investigative journalism? You know, a lot of people are in journalism. I mean, a lot of people go to school for journalism. But very few American journalists end up doing the kind of investigative journalism into the national security state in the way that you do and, and in the way in a way that doesn't have a deference toward uh, popular narratives or state narratives. So can, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you end up in this kind of work? What made you so critical of U.S. foreign policy? And and then toward the end, if you wouldn't mind telling us, how did you and Max found the gray zone? How did that project come into being? So I'll let you say whatever you want about that question. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking it. It's interesting to talk about. Well, I, like a lot of people, I was kind of politicized through the younger generation of political movements. By the time that Occupy happened, I was already very involved in progressive politics. And that, I felt like at that moment, it kind of became... I wouldn't say mainstream, but it became for millennials, for people born toward the end of the first Cold War. I think that was this kind of moment when there was the birth of a kind of new, new left, if you will. So, you know, of course, people use the term the new left to refer to the wave of progressive movements often led by students in the 60s and 70s. And I think that if you look through the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s and 90s, the left was really weak, and, and we've seen a, a major insurgence, resurgence of the left. So I, when I was in high school and then college, I was involved in progressive politics, but I, I wasn't really so interested in, in organizing and going to protest. I, I did all of that stuff, 
you know, I did civil disobedience a few times and, but I, I was, you know, I'm, I've always been kind of more academically inclined, intellectually inclined, if you will. And I found writing and research and investigations more interesting to me. And I thought I could contribute more, you know, to the progressive movement through journalism, through investigations. And I began writing when I was in college and began freelancing. And then there were a variety of things that happened, like the 2014 war in Gaza, which, you know, in 2012, there was there was a lesser known Israeli war in Gaza that was briefer. And then, of course, going back to 2008 and 2009, right before Obama came in, there was this just murderous, heinous war cast led on Gaza. And I had I had been aware politically and been opposed to those wars. But by 2014, I was really engaged and I began writing a lot and in, in doing original, original investigative work on Israel-Palestine around 2014. And then I was working with Mondo Weiss and some of these other websites. And I eventually got like my first kind of full-time journalism job at Salon in 2015 and 2016. And that was, that was of course, the moment when Bernie Sanders was... He he was on the you know there's this upswell. He was looking it was looking like he could very seriously be the Democratic Party's candidate, and there was this kind of moment in slightly more mainstream media where they allowed a few not many but a few voices that were more supportive of Sanders and that kind of progressive wing. Before that was harshly clamped down on, and the media has become even more tightly controlled since 2015. And and it was already pretty bad in 2015, so that was a pretty instructive moment for me. And by right after the election in November, Salon brought in a neoliberal former Silicon Valley. He was actually he he didn't even have experience in print. He w- was involved in the business side of TV news, so-called news, over in California. And Salon laid off the previous editor-in-chief and CEO, and the Salon board brought on this neoliberal who just did total kind of shock therapy, laid off half of the editorial staff, including me, and pivot, tried to pivot to video and did all this thing. You know, just the things that are characteristic of like the new wave of neoliberal liberal media. And I was laid off, but a friend of mine, Max Blumenthal, and I had kind of worked with him on and off. I had known him originally through his really excellent reporting on Israel-Palestine. You know, we were, we were friends and colleagues, and he reached out to me and said that he was starting this new project at Alternet. Basically, RIP. I mean, Alternet, it still kind of exists, but it's a shell of its old, of its old self. Alternet was one of the first kind of independent, internet-based left-wing news websites, and Max was he got an opportunity to create like a new vertical, a new column, essentially a section of Alternet that he he called the Gray Zone Project, and that's why it was originally called the Gray Zone Project is because it was it was a project at Alternet. It was hosted by Alternet. And we were there for about two years. And then Alternet got bought up by a major Clinton donor, a center-right neoliberal Democrat elite. 
and he laid off pretty much everyone. And one of the first things that happened is, of course, he got rid of. Well, it was technically before the 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 buy off, but all but for political and editorial reasons, the Gray Zone project was pushed out. And Max and I talked about potential alternatives, and we decided to go independent. So the Gray Zone project, as originally was founded by Max Blumenthal, it was his idea. He came up with the name, and then by the time we went independent, we just got rid of project, and it's the Gray Zone. So, you know, it's been a it's been a trajectory, and it's been I've learned a lot of lessons, and and we've kind of switched our emphasis over the years in response to U.S. foreign policy, but. I mean, I could talk about this for much longer. That's, you know, that answer is already too long. But the final thing I'll add is that, you know, th that explains the kind of trajectory of my journalistic work. But a more interesting question maybe for listeners is what you asked about why I'm interested in covering this topic and why so few journalists do. Well, I'll answer the second half first. I think so few journalists cover this topic, one, because there is not only very few incentives to do it, in fact, it's the opposite. There are so many incentives not to do it because if you critically cover U.S. foreign policy and, frankly, U.S. imperialism, foreign policy is often used as a pseudonym, as a rather as a euphemism for U.S. imperialism. The reality is that there are so many institutional impediments to covering anything and if you do cover it in a critical way, you're really going to face a lot of professional problems. So the reality of the media is that it attracts opportunists and careerists because this is their job. It's not just their passion. It's not like activists, most of whom they don't work doing their activism. They have some other job. But with journalists, it's usually their, their main job, their source of income. So they're forced into that kind of careerism and opportunism. And then the other reality is that the few kind of foreign policy NATSEC journalists that do exist are really just kind of propagandists for the U.S. national security state. And not only ideologically do they believe in the mission of U.S. intelligence agencies, of the military, etc., but they also, they, they're fed scoops by the national security state. The CIA, the FBI, the DHS agencies like ICE, you know, there are a few journalists I can think of who basically get fed these scoops and then they think that they're, you know, they're, they're such great investigative journalists, but actually what they're doing is they're serving as a kind of escape valve. There's something that we, we talk about called controlled leaks. A controlled leak is where an institution in government intentionally allows leaked information to go to the press to use to its political advantage for marketing or as a way, like I said, as a kind of escape valve if pressure is building up, something like ICE. So there were, under the Trump administration, there were a series of kind of ICE-controlled leaks from Immigration and Custom Enforcement to, to by more liberal members of ICE who were trying to market it in a way that, that puts all the blame on Trump. So the point is that even if some of these journalists who focus on NATSEC issues think that they're, they're outsmarting the system, in many ways they're actually being used. So unfortunately, there are very few of us who take that very critical lens of opposing the national security state fundamentally, first and foremost, regardless of whether or not it's a Republican or Democrat in charge. And, you know, the gray zone, we've been trying to build it up as that kind of voice, as a voice, a very rare voice in U.S. media of journalists who see the U.S. national security state 
and its infinite crimes, its myriad, you know, corrupt acts and very devious acts against not only people around the world, but against Americans ourselves, we see those as the most important political issues, even though they get the least media coverage. Wow, that was well said. And I'll say for myself that I read The Gray Zone personally because there are stories on The Gray Zone that you won't even get from self-proclaimed lefty or progressive journalists, journalism outlets, uh, including The Intercept, Democracy Now!, which are outlets I in the past have really enjoyed. But, you know, your work and Max's and Aaron Maté's work uh, and, and Gareth Porter, Anya Parampel, uh shown that even those outlets can fall victim to some of the same traps uh, of the national security state that the more mainstream networks have fallen victim to or chosen to be victim to. Uh, you know, before we move off the gray zone, though, I, I want to just highlight, like, from a, a third person's point of view, it does seem like the gray zone is subject to just so much vitriol. And I'll, I'll give it to you that it's from all the right people. Like you get the right people hating on you as in it's a, it's a testament to your own character, the, the people who criticize you. But to me, that suggests that you're doing something right. Uh, and I've seen you, you guys, uh, you, Aaron, Anya, uh, Max, uh, all referred to as things like conspiracy theorists, war crimes deniers, propagandists, even that silly one, Assadists, <laughs> and all these crazy names. Um, well, first, I want to know, for me, for me, that would be very hard to deal with that level of criticism, even though so many people praise you as well. Just the the level of of uh, of denial of your great journalism and, and also just needless hatred that goes your way. Uh, I want to know, what do you make of that? What do you think explains all that vitriol? And then despite all this criticism that you face, does anyone actually ever dispute your reporting? Do they ever deny that what you, you guys are reporting is true? Or do they just stick to character assassination? Thank you for asking the question that way. I mean, I'll answer the, the latter half first. No, absolutely not. The reality is that we are subject to so much vitriol, so many ad hominem attacks, precisely because people can't factually debunk the reporting that we're doing and that's why they resort to the ad hominems if they could factually prove that what we're saying is incorrect they wouldn't need to and what's so incredible to me is i think of you know there's so many scholars who are like this you know michael parenti even you know norman finkelstein and so many who because their work is just obviously true and all you have to do is look at the footnotes and it's incontrovertibly true there's just such you know, fervent, heated smear campaigns against them, calling them the most ridiculous things. Like in the case of Finkelstein, you know, this is a guy whose parents were were Nazi Holocaust camp survivors, concentration camp survivors, and he's been smeared as like a Holocaust denier, which is so insane. So, I mean, you know, it's the same, the, the whole genocide denier has been used against Michael Parenti, Noam Chomsky, against so many people. So it's not new, and it's because the kind of liberal intelligentsia that are the ones, you know, there's also like the more conservative types, but it's frequently the liberal intelligentsia. It's because they're incapable of factually responding. So the fact of the matter, I don't just say this, you know, clearly I'm biased. I, I have been in part, part of the gray zone for several years. It's very dear to my heart, but, you know, objectively speaking, we have never had to retract a story. We've never had to issue a kind of like big issue, a big major correction. Of course, 
we're humans, we're fallible. We've had to do some very minor corrections and things like things like that are very normal for any news outlet. But we've never had to retract a story or issue a major correction. But that's why these, you know, they never factually challenge our reporting. And a lot of our reporting methodologically, you know, I, I mentioned people like Chomsky who has he has a certain kind of methodology and you know Chomsky has been very influential politically on me I disagree with him very fervently on some issues but he was pretty politically influential for my development as a journalist and a thinker and as a human and one of the, one of the ways in which he was influential is if you look at his methodology most of Chomsky's footnotes are referencing mainstream corporate media outlets or kind of government reports or things that you know things that would be con sources that would be considered impeachable to the liberal intelligentsia so and i and usually in our journalism it's a very similar methodology in a lot of my reports like we're going to talk about today my yemen report recently it's all mainstream media reports that i'm citing of course it's mainstream media reports from several years ago that were conveniently ignored that were it was something that was reported once or twice and then just flushed on the memory hole but the reality is that these things that, that, that methodologically, they're unimpeachable. That's why the liberal intelligentsia has to resort to calling us Assadists and all this ridiculous nonsense. It, it's also funny, every time I hear the term Assadist, I always think of Assada Shakur. And it's like people are saying like, you guys support Assada Shakur. I'm like, yeah, well, Assada Shakur is, is, was pretty awesome. But no, I mean, it's, it's so absurd. Like, it, it's a great example of the, the smears because if you call out and expose the crimes that the U.S. and its allies have committed in Syria. That's not in any way to say that you're a supporter of Bashar al-Assad, but just looking objectively at what the CIA has done with the largest covert operation program since Operation Cyclone, which was the CIA arming and training program in Afghanistan in the 1980s that gave birth to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So the largest operation after that was something very similar, by the way, was arming and training all of these so-called rebels, many of whom were extremist Islamists, Salafi jihadists, who ethnically cleansed religious and, and ethnic minorities and gave birth to ISIS and the largest Al-Qaeda affiliate since 9-11, located in Syria. So if you expose all of those things, and, and by the way, if you do it in a way like we have, methodologically that relies often on mainstream media reports that now and then has acknowledged some of these facts, usually several years ago, but in the case of our Syria reporting, a lot of our Syria reporting is looking, you know, the citations are based on mainstream media and it's unimpeachable. So that's why they have to say that we're we're Russian agents or just ridiculous nonsense. Now Chinese agent, it, it changes every year, right? But again, just to stress this point, that people resort and across the political spectrum, a common logical fallacy is that people resort to ad hominem attacks when they're incapable of factually challenging your argument. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and I think we see that across the board, you mentioned Chomsky, you mentioned Michael Parenti. I'll, I'll call a more recent example, Julian Assange. You know, it's, it's all this character assassination. You know, they said crazy stuff about him. Like, 
he was smearing feces on the wall in his uh, it, when he was in the embassy. Not that I care if that's true, but I suspect it isn't. Um, you know, th- there is the whole rape scandal, which you know, on its own, fine. You want to investigate that? I, I think that's that's fair. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the war crimes that he exposed. And it's and and by the way, I don't. You might I, you might know more than me. I don't think WikiLeaks has ever had to issue a retraction, uh, or if they have, it's very rare. Like they. Those Afghan-Iraq war logs, they're, they're all factual, and they haven't den- the, the Pentagon hasn't denied that it's true. And with regards to issuing retractions, or Gray Zone has uh, never had to do so, the same cannot be said of uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post, who get things wrong all the time, and, and not least of all the Iraq war, right? MSNBC, you know, uh, they do uh, lies of omission. They, they w- went... Two and a half years nearly uh, discussing Russia every day without mentioning that the United States is committing genocide in Yemen. Are they war crimes deniers? Are they uh, genocide deniers? And it, it just only works in one direction, which and it actually what you know, I would I would argue that it makes, you know, the real Holocaust deniers. Uh, it, it, we're we're uh, diminishing what that actually means to be a genocide denier. Right. Because there are real people who deny the Holocaust. Uh you know, the idea that Michael, uh, not Michael Parenti, uh, uh, Norman Finkelstein is a Holocaust denier. I mean, there are real Holocaust deniers. Why would you water down that term by calling someone whose family was in the Holocaust a Holocaust denier? But, you know, I do want to move on to get to your actual work because it is so good. And, you know, you mentioned Syria. Well, where- well I'm sorry to cut you off, but just re- I'll try to keep it brief and respond to a few things you said there, especially about WikiLeaks really quickly. I'm glad you brought up the just the insane smear campaign against Julian Assange. I mean, just an actual witch hunt. Witch hunt. You know, Trump was like, "There's there's a witch hunt against me." I mean, there's been a witch hunt against Julian Assange going back many years. And I'll say, you know, I don't have time to get into all of this, but Nils Melzer, who is the UN Special Rapporteur, that top expert on torture has written several good reports looking into the politicization and distortion of the sexual assault allegations against Julian Assange. Now, first of all, the the idea that that it was that it's, he's even been accused of rape, which is not true, it's an example of how these distortions were intentionally exaggerated hyperbolically. It's it's a complicated topic, but he was not accused of rape. He was it, he was accused of of having sex with a woman and then not using a condom and I mean it's it's definitely questionable behavior that should be looked into but she did not accuse him of rape and what's also interesting is that there are two women in, involved in in these accusations one of whom is extremely suspicious and in fact the Australian media a mainstream newspaper actually looked into and asked whether or not what her ties were to intelligence agencies noting that she had worked very closely with Cuban anti-Castro exile groups that were backed by the CIA and she was very closely working with them and then there the other woman actually said that this is her language she said that she was quote railroaded by the Swedish authorities into trying to push for charges against Julian Assange even though she said she did not want charges all she wanted him she just wanted to force Assange to take an STD test, which is legal under international law. Sorry, legal under Swedish law. She wanted so one of the women didn't even want any charges. And and by the way, I should mention that 
there were no actual criminal charges against Julian Assange. This whole issue has been so exaggerated and th there were no charges and then eventually the investigation was dropped. And at every stage, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange said that they would be willing to to undergo investigation and questioning as long as the Swedish prosecutors promised not to extradite Assange. And Sweden refused to agree not to extradite him. And we, of course, know why, because they were planning on extraditing him to the U.S. So you know, that's just an example of just how absurd all of this is. And then you mention the whole ridiculous thing about smearing, smearing feces on the wall. Where does that come from? That comes from this Spanish cyber the Spanish security firm called UC Global Undercover Global which was hired by the former Ecuadorian government when it was under the left-wing president Rafael Correa to provide security for the Ecuadorian embassy in London where Julian Assange was in asylum and then when the right-wing very corrupt leader Lenny Moreno came in after that the CIA worked a backdoor deal with UC Global and the Spanish security firm was spying on Julian Assange and Ecuadorian embassy staff 24-7, including in the women's bathroom, for the CIA. So they had a constant video and audio feed they were giving to the CIA of 24-7 coverage. And it was UC Global, this firm working secretly for the CIA, extremely dubious, extremely politicized. They were the ones who produced these bogus reports one of the reports accused Assange of smearing feces on the wall. Now, the other accusations, like he was riding around a skateboard, they provided video evidence of that, as if that's a crime. I mean, this is guy, he's, he was trapped in the embassy for several years, and he rode a skateboard. Oh, my God, the end of the world. They have video of that, but they don't have, curiously, they had 24-7 video coverage, but they don't have video of him supposedly smearing feces on the wall because it's false. I'll, I'll say, I'll say, I can state firmly i know that it's false because i have talked extensively with several former ecuadorian diplomats who were in the embassy who worked there who knew julian assange and were with him every single day including fidel narvaez who was the consul of the embassy who's been very outspoken and he said that uc global routinely faked their reports they manufactured claims to justify their surveillance work and to feed what the cia wanted which is, a, by the way, a great example of how U.S. spy agencies, they have all these resources, but frequently, as much as they pressure people and torture people and throw money at people, it actually, that often encourages fake intelligence. Because if you tell someone you're going to give them a bunch of money for intelligence, they'll be like, cool, I'll just give you this unverifiable false intelligence and give me my money. So at, at every single level, I mean, those the, the, the way that Assange has been treated is just so indicative of just this horrific media climate where there's no introspection, there's no skepticism, and whatever the U.S. national security state says is treated as the gospel. Right, and, and at the core of it, it's the character assassination thing. And, uh, you know, the rape stuff is sensitive, especially in, we're in the Me Too era, but that's complicated, as you pointed to, the and people... It, people are hesitant to, to investigate the nuance there. And yet, again, it, it doesn't work the other way, right? Like, you, we'll study, you know, I'm a history teacher. We'll study people in history. And, like, if you talk about how, 
maybe Teddy Roosevelt was a genocidal lunatic, an imperialist. Uh, people will say stuff like, yeah, but he passed the Food and Drug Act. It's like, it's like well, people are nuanced only uh, when they're on, on the American imperialism side. We don't grant nuance to any of America's official enemies. And it's just, it, it's just so obvious when you start looking through the history books about who is granted nuance and who isn't. But I do want to, to move us forward. But thank you for that break, because we, we have not talked about Julian Assange enough on this show, and we do want to talk more about him uh, as we move through uh, our episodes here. But for now, we do want to focus on a very important issue, and that's the war in Yemen. And of course, this is a six-year-old war. Uh, I think it is not exaggeration at all to, to call it genocide. Uh, and we've actually had uh, Shireen Al-Adimi on the show earlier this year, or actually it was last year, to speak about this. And she's a, a great activist on this topic. And she she's broke it down for our audience exactly who the main players are and the history of U.S. involvement, which the U.S. has been involved and a primary actor in this war from the beginning. But an aspect we have not talked about is the utter hypocrisy uh, of the United States in their s- support for the Saudi war, or you could argue the Saudi-U.S. war, uh, along with the UAE in Yemen, against the Houthis. And just the uh, the Houthis are the allegedly, we'll talk about this, allegedly Iranian-linked Shiite group that has been competing for control of the government in Yemen. But then right before the Trump administration uh, left office, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo designated the Houthis as a terrorist group and you point out that this is so incredibly hypocritical because as they're designated the Houthis as a terrorist group, their arch enemies, Al-Qaeda, the group that brought down the Twin Towers, the very cause for the war on terror, is being supported by the United States. And I hope I'm paraphrasing you correctly, but I'm going to start out with some basic questions and you, um, by all means, uh, tee off and, and go uh, explain as long as you want to about this incredibly interesting topic. So first of all, who are the Houthis historically? And do you mentioned that they, they hold some anti-imperialist views that many listeners might be intrigued by. Can you elaborate on who they are? Absolutely. The Western media coverage of Yemen has been so atrocious in so many ways, and the treatment of the so-called Houthis is a great example, even from the very name. Now, in, in Arabic, actually, people say Houthion, which is, means the Houthis, plural for Houthi. So it's not entirely ridiculous to call them that, but they actually call themselves Ansar Allah. And just like the group Hezbollah in Lebanon, that that's you know that that's their official name, but they're always called the Houthis, the Houthis after their founder and some of his siblings who were involved in the leadership movement, the founder Hussein al Houthi, and and I'll really briefly here's an overview, but we should understand that today the Houthis, as you alluded to, they're not just some random group in Yemen. The Houthis are effectively the main governing force in the majority of Yemen. Now, in order to understand Yemeni politics and history, we have to understand that Yemen, until very recently, within our lifetimes, Yemen was actually divided. So in 1990, North and South Yemen reunited, and then in 1994, there was actually another war where the South tried to secede. So there's a long history of a kind of North-South rivalry. There's different cultural, political, historical, and religious reasons for that, and in some ways, you can, there are some parallels with 
the conflict in Ireland with the Troubles, although I would not, it's definitely not a one-to-one analogy. I just say that because there are, there are political differences which kind of map onto the political difference, onto the religious differences. So, like, just as in, in Ireland, very few people who know anything would call that a religious conflict. That would be extremely dumb. But sometimes people with this kind of Orientalist framework, they call the conflicts in Yemen a religious conflict. It's not. It's a political conflict, but the reality is that the northern part of the country is largely a kind of unorthodox form of Shia Islam, and the south is largely Sunni, although there are, of course, Sunnis and Shias on both sides. And the the Houthis come out of the Shia community, the unorthodox Shia community in the north of Yemen. And that's important because we have to understand that until 1990, Yemen was divided and the southern part of Yemen had a Marxist government. It was, in fact, the only Marxist government in the history of the Middle East. There were some socialist and Arab nationalist governments, progressive governments, but the only Marxist government was South Yemen, very closely out of the Soviet Union. And in 1990, like I said, with the overthrow of the socialist governments in the Eastern Bloc, the South was forcibly reincorporated in with the North into a national state. And what happened is that the leader of the time of Yemen, whose name was Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, Saleh pushed a, an agenda, a kind of neoliberal development agenda using a lot of Saudi capital. And Saudi Arabia, as anyone who might kn- knows the basics about Saudi geopolitics, they might know that Basically, the deal that Saudi Arabia has is that they will provide some money for aid, so-called development and other programs, so-called charities, in return for spreading Wahhabism, which is the extremist, far-right kind of distortion of Sunni Islam that is the official state doctrine of Saudi Arabia, of the Saudi monarchy. And that that's Wahhabi influence was spreading through Yemen, and like I said, the northern part of the country is largely Shia, part of the community known as the Zaidi Muslim community. Now, Zaidis, in terms of Islam, in terms of fiqh, which is Islamic jurisprudence, like theology, they're actually not different. They're not very different from mainstream Sunnis. They're, they actually share more in common with mainstream Sunnis than with 12er Shia Muslims, who are the kind of mainstream Shias in Iran and a few other countries. So they share a lot in common, but with the rise of Wahhabism and this extremist form of Sunni Islam that sees anything that diverges from that extremist Saudi form as diabolical, as demonic, there started being a lot of discrimination against the Shia Muslims in the north of Yemen. And there there was a grassroots movement that emerged, originally founded by a senator in Yemen named Hussein al-Houthi. And... He began organizing in the northern part of Yemen in what's an an area called Sada. And this is a very poor area right on the border with Saudi Arabia. And there has been a history of violent conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen there. And a lot of, you know, very poor working class people, including a lot of farmers. And many, like I I said, Zaidi unorthodox Shia Muslims. And especially, so it began as a kind of political, or sorry, it began as a kind of social, cultural, religious movement. And then it became political after 9-11. 
After 9-11, as the Houthis became stronger and the so-called war on terror began, the U.S. began launching more attacks in Yemen against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which used to be the most powerful branch of Al-Qaeda until the war in Syria, thanks to the CIA <laughs> and other countries. So AQAP, as it's known, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen was very powerful, and the U.S. began launching drone strikes and other attacks after 9-11. And what happened is that the president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, he, a kind of nationalist figure who was neoliberal, he was a complex figure. He, he was always trying to play different sides against each other. He was, he was a competent leader, but he didn't really have an ideology. He, he was just, you know, a, a kind of nationalist and very corrupt also, using his office for personal enrichment for him, his family, and associates. And he, he recognized that the Houthis were a big power base that represented a political threat to his control and power. And he began doctoring intelligence reports and feeding just ridiculous claims to the United States to try to encourage the U.S. to go after the Houthis because they were his political rivals. And this is the beginning of this myth that the Houthis are an Iranian proxies, ignoring the indigenous history I just mentioned, ignoring the unique local history of the Zaydis in, in Yemen. And as and he tried to link the Houthis to, Yemen, to Iran, he tried to get the U.S. to wage war on them as part of the war on terror. And then there was a kind of low-intensity conflict between the central government led by Saleh and the Houthis, in response, the Houthis became much more political, and they began through influence, political influence, looking at groups like Hezbollah, which successfully resisted the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon. And like the Houthis, they have a unique indigenous history in Lebanon. You, you know, there's a lot of comparisons between Hezbollah in Lebanon and Ansar Allah, the Houthis in Yemen, and I think that's actually a pretty fair comparison. They're, they're unique groups, but... They have a lot of they have a lot in common, and ideologically, they they share a kind of Shia liberation theology. And people who know about the history of liberation theology in Latin America know that there were these kind of left wing Catholic groups that were very progressive and saw Jesus as a kind of progressive socialist figure, even revolutionary figure. And in Shia Islam, there's a history of resistance against the oppressors with Ali and Hossein and the history of martyrdom and the idea that you should sacrifice to, to serve the oppressed. And there's a history and a modern reality of this kind of liberation theology approach in Shia Islam. And we see that with Hezbollah and we see it with, the, with Ansar Allah, the Houthis. So they became more political. The Houthis began adopting slogans like death to America, death to Israel. They also began speaking out against the war in Iraq. Later on, the Houthis began supporting the Syrian government in the war when the war in Syria began in 2011. They developed a closer political relationship with forces that are known as the Axis of Resistance, which would be uh, Iran, Hezbollah, the Syrian government, and elements of Iraq, like the popular mobilization forces in Iraq. So they, they began incorporating, They even though they emerged as a kind of socio-cultural religious group, they became more and more politicized and became a coherent political force. And in 2004, the leader, Hussein al-Houthi, was murdered in an attack by the Yemeni military ordered by Saleh. 
And that launched a series of wars for six years between the Houthis and the central government, which led to eventually the so-called Arab Spring protests, and there were protests against Salah and Yemen. The Houthis participated in those protests, which led to the overthrow of Salah, who had been, again, the longtime president from for over 20 years. And what happened is that at that point, a lot of Yemenis were hopeful, but the reality is that the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, put through a bogus process claiming to have an election in Yemen in which there was only one candidate, and it was their candidate they handpicked who was Salah's vice president, Abu Rabu Mansour Hadi. And Hadi, extremely corrupt neoliberal technocrat, also incompetent, unlike Salah, who is very competent, just a total puppet of Saudi Arabia backed by the, the Western powers. And he was installed as the so-called president without any actual election because there was no candidate other than him. And then he overstayed his term in office. And then he, when the war began in March of 2015, he fled to Saudi Arabia. And Hadi, the so-called president of Yemen, the puppet president backed by Saudi Arabia and the U.S. and other European powers, he's been spending almost the entire war living in Saudi Arabia. So that that brings us to the actual war. And, and you know, that was a long answer, but that history is really important because, of course, that context is always left out of mainstream corporate media. And, and it gets to the point you, you acknowledged about this media canard, this myth that's always repeated that the Houthis are a, an Iranian proxy. It's absurd. As I said, they have a very unique indigenous history in Yemen, but the reality is that they became a popular political force because they were not corrupt. They were fighting against corruption. They preached, you know, I'm not going to in any way pretend like they're some kind of like socialist force. They're not talking about socialism, but like some of these liberation theology forces, they, they preach against corruption. They preached in support of of the oppressed. In a lot of their speeches, they talk about helping the oppressed and fighting the oppressor, which is also kind of part of Shia, parts of like kind of Shia theology. And because the Yemeni government was so corrupt, they were actually welcomed in. And in 2014, they actually took over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. And it gets complicated because Salah actually formed an alliance of convenience with them and then tried to betray them and then they killed Salah. But the point is that the Houthis are the, they control the government. They created a government which has an, an, an elected body and then a, an executive council. So they have the executive council, which is half members of Ansar Allah and then half members of other, other parties. And by the way, the socialist party in Yemen and the Nasserite party have often worked in alliance with the Houthis, just as in Lebanon, the Lebanese Communist Party and and Hezbollah and some other progressive forces often form a kind of coalition, a political coalition. So again, that's not to say that they share the same ideology. Ansar Allah, like Hezbollah and some of these other Shia groups, they they have a kind of progressive economic view, kind of, but then they're also neoliberal. I mean, the reality is that they're they have this they talk about helping the poor a lot but they're they don't have a, a coherent economic philosophy and they preach helping the oppressed and they preach strong anti-imperialism against the United States and Western Europe and Israel they refuse to recognize Israel 
like I said, one of the slogans of Ansar Allah, the Houthis, is death to America, death to Israel. But to be to be fair, they also, on sociocultural issues, they're not progressive. You know, they have some reactionary views on women and other, and other sociocultural issues. So it's a complex matter, but the reality is that Western media outlets, when they even acknowledge the Houthis as a political force, often they're just treated as some kind of like gang or like a clan or something. But basically it's a social movement that has its origins going back to the 1990s in Yemen and has a political base of support not only among many Zaidi Muslims, but even among non-Zaidi Muslims because of that political program, because of their fight against corruption, and because of their their resistance against imperialism and against this brutal, like you said, genocidal war that's been waged against the country, so when they're not even when they're when they're when they're not portrayed like that in that cartoonish way, of course they're portrayed as so-called proxies of Iran, which is another ridiculous media narrative, and it shows that even the so-called respectable liberals, they still basically share that kind of same worldview with the hardcore neoconservatives like Mike Pompeo. That was a great explanation, and it, it shares a lot of parallels with stuff that I feel like we can see in other areas of the Middle East and Central Asia and North Africa, for that matter. Uh, as When you were explaining that, it specifically reminded me of, of how the Taliban is talked about, right? Like the Taliban, as if there's some external force in Afghanistan, right? And from the beginning of the Afghanistan war, we were hearing how evil the Taliban was. And yeah, I, I don't agree with the Taliban's worldview. Uh, you know, certainly they're not a progressive group. But the fact is a lot of people in Afghanistan support the Taliban. And then if you do the smallest amount of research, you find out, well, the Northern Alliance that the U.S. was supporting wasn't exactly a progressive group either. You know, every bit is uh, has a... Uh, suppressing of women's rights, of course, of gay rights. And, you know, it's all in this myth that the United States is involved in military interventions to promote human rights. And that's the ultimate lie there. And it has nothing to do with democracy or human rights. It has everything to do with expanding hegemonic power. And it's just something else you said that unless you're a weapons maker or, or part of the military industrial complex in some other way, it is amazing how catastrophic a failure the u.s war on ter- terror is you know you give you give uh random tribesmen uh, warlords mo- some money in afghanistan they'll tell us who the taliban and al-qaeda is okay we, we'll go bomb or capture somebody send them to guantanamo bay half the time it's the wrong person we make more enemies make <laughs> make more make more resistance for the united states or in yemen where, where you you know you convince uh salah to let the united states bomb whoever it wants in yemen and you know Yemen will take credit for the bombing until we find out later is the United States doing a lot of the bombings. We kill lots of civilians, create more enemies, create more al-Qaeda. It's like, is there a single situation where the war on terror has any metric of success? I'm not asking you, Ben. We know the answer to that. But it's just incredible how what a make-work program it is. I sound like a libertarian now, but... That it's just such a catastrophic failure. But I know um, we do want to move on. And, and this is an easy question. And probably most of the viewers are aware of this. But, you know, there's this designation that we designate groups as terrorist organizations. I don't know if other countries do that. Like, or, But the United States doing it has real significance, right? So this Houthis being designated as a terrorist group, 
is going to have some impact. And I was wondering if you could speak to why we need to be concerned about this label. Why do, why should people care, especially people who care about Yemen, care about this horrible war of starvation uh, and, and bombing of civilians? Why should we care that the Houthis have now been designated as a terrorist group? Yeah, one second. Sorry, I'm just I'm playing in my computer because it's about to die. Oh, that's all right. I'll, well, I'll, I'll fill us in in the in the interim here. So, the the irony that Ben is about to speak about is that first of all, the the U.S. terrorist designation is something we've written about on our blog is totally hypocritical and inconsistent, and it's even inconsistent with the same groups, right? So groups will come on and off the terrorist list. Uh, the Mujahideen al-Khalq, that's the MEK, was a, originally designated a terrorist group the, when, they were, when they were killing Americans and, they, and of course, killing Iranians uh, in past decades. But as soon as they became useful in destabilizing Iran, they're no longer a terrorist group. The state sponsors of terrorism, Iraq in 1979 was a state sponsor of terrorism, according to the United States government. But in 1982, when the U.S. wanted to sell Iraq weapons and support it in its war with Iran, suddenly... Iraq is no longer a state sponsor of terror. And, you know, something that anyone who listens to our show or reads our blog will, will know is that these designations don't mean anything except who the United States wants to target. So, Ben, if you're ready to, to answer that question, why, why, are, why is this such a catastrophic label to put on the Houthis, especially in this time of the war? Yeah, it's a really great question, and, and I'm glad you pointed out all the hypocrisy of the so-called U.S. terrorism list. By the way, I'll, I'll mention that until 2008, Nelson Mandela, the South African anti-apartheid leader who's been so whitewashed and, and de-radicalized, even though he actually was a revolutionary figure, he was on the U.S. terrorism watch list. And the African National Congress, the governing the the party that's been the governing party of post-apartheid South Africa, democratically elected party, has was also on the U.S. terrorism list because the ANC and Nelson Mandela refused to oppose armed struggle against the U.S.-supported apartheid regime in South Africa. So it, that's a classic example. It's a textbook example of how the U.S. considers terrorism any groups that support any kind of armed struggle against its interests. And the Houthis are a classic example of that. Now, you talked about the war on terror and the hypocrisy of it and how much of a failure it is. If you take it what its claims were at face value, it's absolutely 100% been a failure. But of course, the reality is, as you and as many people know, it was never actually about combating terror because the reality is that terrorism doesn't... One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. That's true. And the reality is that it was always deeply hypocritical from day one and before day one. And in my article about the U.S. support for al-Qaeda in Yemen, and I'll get to that in a second, and this is not hyperbolic in any way. This has been acknowledged obliquely even by mainstream corporate media outlets. The reality is that this is one of several examples of the U.S. being allied with al-Qaeda. And, and and in fact, I, I mentioned in my article, there's a hilarious email that was, that was released by WikiLeaks, and it's another example of why Julian Assange is a political prisoner being tortured, because he exposed this. 
In 2012, Jake Sullivan, who was formerly a top Hillary Clinton advisor, and he's actually now Joe Biden's national security advisor. In 2012, Jake Sullivan emailed Clinton and he said, quote, AQ, Al Qaeda, is on our side in Syria. <laughs> so that, that was that was them acknowledging right at the beginning. 2012 is very early in the war in Syria, acknowledging that they knew that they were allied with Al Qaeda in Syria. And my colleague Max Blumenthal uses that as the kind of epitaph at the beginning of his book, The Management of Savagery, how the U.S. national security state created ISIS and Donald Trump. Brilliant book. And he, in his book, talks about so much of this and how the so-called war on terror, from its very origins, was always the deeply hypocritical and going back even before. So I mentioned the CIA operation in the 1980s that gave birth to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But... I could also mention in the 1990s with the NATO wars in Yugoslavia, where NATO supported the KLA, and the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, was deeply embedded by these extremist Salafi jihadists. And in Bosnia, there were some of these forces that were extremist Salafi jihadists that had a kind of Al-Qaeda-style ideology. People might actually know that there's this group called uh, At-Tahrir, which is an, an Islamist extremist group. And there's this British neoconservative figure who used to be affiliated with uh, uh, um, with the, it's called Hizb Utahrir, like the Party of Liberation. It's this extreme Salafi jihadist. Well, I wouldn't call them Salafi, they're Salafis. They're not Salafi jihadists because they don't, they're not really violent, but they're an extremist Salafist group. And they actually sent a bunch of people with the knowledge of the British security forces to Bosnia to go fight against Serbian forces backed. They were allied, politically allied with Russia. So throughout, I mean, by the way, I should mention that not only did the KLA, where not only were they allied with these Al-Qaeda style forces, but the KLA also, NATO acknowledged they traded drugs. They were really involved in the drug trade. And one of their leaders loved to dress up as Hitler and after the war he continued there was like a tourist attraction where he would he looked like Hitler apparently and would always so there were a bunch of Nazis that were also involved in the KLA so the point is that this goes back so far I mean I don't have time to get we can even go back to the British Empire supporting the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood and we can talk about the fact that one the father of Salafi jihadism, Saeb Qutb studied in the United States. And part of the reason, by the way, for his radicalization was him being a, a dark-skinned Egyptian, you know, looking basically black, is that he faced racial discrimination in the United States and he hated his experience in the United States, but he was also, you know, he was welcomed to the United States. So there's a very long history of the British Empire first and the American Empire later, cultivating Islam, cultivating political Islam, extremist forms of Islamism, mostly of the Sunni variety, and using, weaponizing it. And, and it's too useful. It was useful to the British Empire and it's useful to the U.S. Empire. So the 9-11 attacks is not going to stop that because it's geopolitical. So the, the reality is that while the U.S. was 
some in some ways fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq during the Iraq war because al-Qaeda was part of the insurgency, although I should mention that the main insurgency in Iraq was not al-Qaeda. The main insurgency against the U.S. military occupation was led by some of these kind of Shia liberation forces and also some nationalist forces. But if you look at like Muqtada Asadr and figures like that, these are Shia forces that actually hate al-Qaeda and are fighting against al-Qaeda. So the reality is that because of geopolitics, the U.S. was never really that interested in fighting Salafi jihadist groups because they're too useful, which is why in during the so-called war on terror, terror in 2011 in Libya, the U.S. allied and Britain allied with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, an Al-Qaeda-aligned group, Britain, the British security services knowingly sent members of the LIFG, LIFG to Libya to fight against Gaddafi, including Salman Abadi, who then returned to Manchester and blew himself up in a suicide bombing at an Ariana Grande concert, killing two dozen young people. And then in Syria, the U.S. and Western European powers and Israel and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar were supporting Al-Qaeda and similar groups that are just rebranded Al-Qaeda, like Jaish al-Islam, which had the same ideology as Al-Qaeda, but was just created by Saudi Arabia. And then now in Yemen... We see the same exact example. So that was another, and I'm sorry these answers are long, but the thing is, one of the reasons I like doing these podcast interviews is because even in my my articles is we often, I don't have time to go into like the deep historical context, but the reality is that the war on terror was so farcical from day one because for geopolitical reasons, as part of the prerogatives of empire, the U.S. is going to continue it has been is going to continue supporting the Salafi jihadist groups because they support its geopolitical interests. And Yemen is another example of how Ansar Allah, the Houthi movement, have been the main forces fighting against Al-Qaeda, whereas Saudi Arabia, as in many countries, has been supporting Al-Qaeda. And the so-called government in the South, which is an extremely corrupt, unelected regime, which barely governs about 20% of the population and is very incompetent and very and can't provide social services and very little insecure very little security that government is full to the brim with these Salafi jihadist extremists including by the way people who are on the US terror list so while the US is designating the Houthis who are the main enemies of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as so-called terrorists. Meanwhile, people who have been on the U.S. terror list for many years for their links to al-Qaeda are in their ministers or top officials in the so-called southern government that the U.S. recognizes as the only legitimate government of Yemen. Yeah, and the thing about Yemen is it's a bit of a, a of a surprise, and it probably will be to some of our listeners, because not that anyone is going to be surprised that the U.S. is supporting Salafi extremists. Um, what people might be surprised at is the fact that how bipolar the U.S. role in Yemen has been, whereas up until 2015 in the war on terror, they were allegedly fighting al-Qaeda. You know, we, we mentioned a lot of the drone bombings and often killing civilians, uh, including American civilians. Um, but... You know, the, the thing about designating the Houthis is this is really going to have an impact. The, it, the, this way that they turned in 2015 to 
now be against the Houthis and de facto on the side of Al-Qaeda. And this is not a secret. I mean, your, your article shows that this is not some obscure conspiracy theory. It's reported by like the Wall Street Journal and the, and the AP. Uh, and this is well documented. All you have to do is Google Al-Qaeda fighting in Yemen, a, Associated Press, and you'll, you'll see it. And it's well documented. So this has been known since the beginning of the war. Same thing is true with Syria, which we'll talk about in a second. What matters, though, is that this designation of the Houthis, who are by all uh, means the actual government, the only existing government of Yemen right now, you've designated the government of Yemen a terrorist group. So how is that going to hurt civilians on the ground in Yemen? That, that's the key question, because the reality, like I said, you almost will never see this acknowledged in mainstream corporate media outlets. The, the government in the northern part of Yemen, and when I say North Yemen, it's the boundary is kind of complicated. If you look back at the partition of Yemen, it is kind of north, but it actually, it's really Western Yemen, and it includes most of Western Yemen. And then like the southeastern part is what used to be South Yemen. And the majority of Yemen's population lives in the Western and, and Northern Western part of the country. And I've seen estimates vary, but it's likely that around 70 or even 80% of the Yemeni population lives in that area. And that is governed by a government in which the Houthis, the Ansar Allah, play the main role. And as I mentioned, they've created a government with kind of two tiers. They have, they have, an, elector they have a, an executive body with 10 members, half of whom are Ansar Allah and then people from other parties. And then they have an elected kind of parliament body which is elected but they govern the country and they have a program for governing they actually release they have pretty good by the way they have a pretty good kind of marketing arm or PR arm because they release these reports these kind of like monthly reports about what they're doing what their policies and plans are and latest casualty rates and they release these reports online you can find them in English French Arabic a bunch of languages they're a real government. And in fact, the reality is that they're, despite the horrific war and the economic crisis that's unleashed, which I'll talk about in a second, and the humanitarian catastrophe, the worst humanitarian catastrophe since World War II, despite that, they are actually a more competent government than the so-called government in the South, which is barely held together by like gorilla glue and like I said, the so-called president, Hadi, has been living in, in Saudi Arabia for the entire war. So as for the humanitarian c catastrophe, that's, what, that's, that's what's so dangerous about this is because, like I said, the Houthis are such an integral part of the government. So by declaring them a terrorist organization, the United States is effectively declaring the Yemeni government a terrorist organization. So if you're an aid organization, like even the United Nations, the World Food Program, or other humanitarian organizations, it's going to be more difficult for you to provide assistance to the, the area in Yemen where the majority of Yemenis live, the north, because it's governed by a government, a coalition government led by the Houthis, by Ansar Allah. So many groups warn that this is effectively criminalizing humanitarian aid to Yemen. And complicating that even further is the fact that this humanitarian catastrophe is entirely man-made. And it's so frustrating to me when, we, when you see me media reports, they, they t if they'll acknowledge the, the catastrophe, 
but they'll treat it frequently as a kind of natural disaster, right? We it's it's so wild to hear the way humanitarian catastrophes in places like Yemen or Somalia or Congo or Afghanistan or Iraq are discussed. They're discussed as if they're just acts of nature and it's not as if they're political products, creations of foreign wars waged against them, often by the United States. And if you look at the countries with the, the worst food insecurity in the world, these, there are these countries I mentioned, like Yemen, Afghan, like Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Libya, and Congo, which have all been totally destabilized by U.S. military intervention. It's like when neoliberal economists point to Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and Lebanon and Syria as high as and Iran as having some of the highest inflation rates in the entire world. And they're like, ha ha, these backward countries with high inflation. It's like, huh, what unites Venezuela, Iran, Zimbabwe, Lebanon, and Syria? Uh, sanctions, some of the most brutal sanctions regimes imposed in the entire history of humanity that are economic blockades on these countries. Anyway, the point is that these things are depoliticized, but finally what I'll say here is that earlier you said that you could call the war genocidal. Now, I usually, people might not think it because, you know, I'll admit sometimes I can be, I wouldn't say hyperbolic, but I can be kind of emotional when I talk about some of this stuff and speak very intensely. But I usually, I try to always stick to the facts and I wouldn't say hyperbolic because there are certain words that I avoid. I try not to use words like genocide because it is a very specific definition and it's so abused, not only just in kind of casual daily conversation, but especially by the US government as we see with this ridiculous designation against China. I mean, it's, it really, it's really insulting because actual victims of genocide, like the Nazi Holocaust and, and other genocides, they, you know, if you abuse the word genocide, it, it downplays what they went through and the severity of those crimes. But I think that this is one of those wars, one of the rare conflicts where you can actually say it's genocidal or borderline genocidal. And why do I say that? Because the UN definition of genocide says that you don't have to be successful to actually be guilty of genocide if it's an actual campaign organized meant at the intentional extermination of a, a civilian population. And if you look at the war and you look at the Saudi bombing backed by the US and the UK and the intentional targeting of, of civilian infrastructure and specifically food production, it is very clear United Nations top experts have said this, that it is very clear that it is an, a campaign of a scorched earth campaign that is using starvation as a weapon to starve millions of Yemenis into submission for political reasons, which is a genocidal campaign of mass starvation. And I've been reporting on this, you know, not in any way to brag, but before it was well before it was acknowledged, there was a brilliant scholar named Martha Mundy, who is a professor emeritus of London School of Economics, an expert on the political economy of Yemen. And I did a report at Salon in 2015 or 2016, really early in the conflict. I believe it was 2016. And it was based on research that she did that was largely ignored. 
in which she looked at the targets of the Saudi bombing. And I should stress, the Saudi bombing backed by the United States and Britain, which was, by the way, declared in Washington when it began, that bombing began in March of 2015. So her research showed that by the by the very latest, by 2016, that people knew that that Saudi bombing was intentionally targeting food production. Around one-third of targets were civilian targets, and they were hitting farms. You know, there's all these photos of... I was always confused because, like, in the AP archive, there were all these photos of ca- dead cows in Yemen. I was like, why are there so many photos of cows? This is weird. And it's because they were intentionally bombing farms, food warehouses, markets, popular markets, not just supermarkets. You know, they were trying to, there still are, there's not as much bombing now, but it was a, a, stored, a scorched earth campaign because they recognized that they couldn't, they couldn't dislodge Ansar Allah from power. So that's a genocidal campaign. If you're trying to starve millions of people, and, and it's worked because tens of millions of Yemenis are food insecure, don't know where their next meal is going to come from, and millions are on the verge of famine. So this is the largest humanitarian catastrophe since World War II. It's the largest humanitarian catastrophe in the world today, and it's entirely manufactured, politically made, and the U.S. has continued to make it worse. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, Joe Biden has been saying for years, and some Democrats, they're saying they're supposedly going to end the war. And I really hope they do. For the people of Yemen, I really hope they do. But I'm skeptical. We'll see Obama campaign saying that he was going to end the war in Afghanistan in 2014. He said it. I wrote an article. I think I documented that he said it over 20 times, 20 different times. He said he was going to end the war in 2014, end the war. And it's 2021. There's still a war going on in Afghanistan. So I hope Biden does, but there's every reason to be skeptical considering that Biden, the Obama-Biden administration, began the war in Yemen and the very hawkish imperialist who is the current Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, advocated for sending more weapons to Saudi Arabia. Wow, Ben, thank you for all that context. And uh, you apologized before for giving so much context, but that's what we want. The name of the show is In the Context of Empire. So the more, the better, as long as we're being respectful of your time. Take as much time as you need. Uh, I just have a couple of comments. Um, Yeah, that term genocide, you know, I'm hesitant to use it as well. And, uh, you know, I've been corrected before, you know, with some mass killings, like I, I, you know, I was talking about the, the, what I used to call the Indonesian genocide of 1965. Some people call that the mass killing because it may not have targeted a specific uh, race of people or ethnic group, but, you know, it was targeting a political party and that, in that case, the the suspected communist party. Um, Well, if, sorry to cut you off already, but just one quick note on that, you know, with that particular mass killing, if you will, I think it's really splitting hairs for two reasons. One, there was an element of genocide. If I don't think the term genocide should only refer to ethnic groups or racial groups because in the case of Yemen, it, you couldn't really say then it's a genocide because the southern part of the country is also Yemeni. And that actually obscures more than it helps frequently. It's more about a certain particular targeted population. 
But but more than that, the second reason why I think it could be accurately called a genocide is that in those mass killings backed by the CIA in 65 and 66 in Indonesia, backed by, led by the U.S.-backed military dictator Suharto, the Chinese minority in Indonesia also was subject to mass extermination. So there was an element of racial targeting because there was the suspect they suspected that many Chinese were were communists or loyal to the Communist Party or sympathetic to the Communist Party because in 1959 the Chinese Revolution had prevailed and many Chinese in the diaspora supported the revolution and the revolutionary government. And I should add, by the way, one final note on that. The CIA acknowledged in internal reports that the Indonesian genocide or mass killing or people sometimes called a politicide was one of the worst mass killings of the 20th century alongside the Nazi Holocaust. And that was and the CIA, by the way, supported that mass killing. So, it, I mean, it, it's it's incredible. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, we have a, something up on our blog. It's one of our second posts where we wrote we wrote something to the effect of does the United States stand against genocide? It was largely a criticism of Samantha Power. And if you look at the record of the United States, especially since World War II, you know, when the, you know, the, the genocide that most people recognize, the Holocaust, most genocides the United States has either been directly complicit in or quietly supported. And, you know, we talk about the, the Bangladesh, the Bangladeshi genocide committed by Pakistan, which is probably the worst since the Nazi Holocaust. Yeah, we included that. We included the, the Indonesian one. I, I had just finished uh, on the have you read Vincent Bevan's book, uh, the, Jakarta the Jakarta method? method. Yeah. And he, he doesn't use the word genocide so much, but. You know, like you said, for many reasons, it could be considered a genocide. The Guatemalan genocide, a lot of people consider that the nine. Was genocide. Yeah, and a lot of people, including UN uh, representatives, have called the '90s sanctions on Iraq genocide. And and right now, you know, we're, we're arguably living through genocide. So, I do want to move on to Syria, which we've. Wait, sorry, sorry, go did, ahead, but go ahead. Just one other, the East Timor genocide. Basically, I mean. You could, again, it's splitting hairs on these things, whether or not it's genocide, but the Indonesian mass killings in, in East Timor. Yeah, uh, and that's directly connected to the, the Indonesian genocide as well, of course. And uh, people should definitely check out that book, by the way, The Jakarta Method. It's excellent. And um, I do want to get us onto Syria, but yeah, just with whether we call it genocide or not in Yemen, we can acknowledge these are serious war crimes. And you know who else can acknowledge it? Barack Obama's administration because they were doing their own research into this. Their own legal team was worried that they were going to be convicted on, for international war crimes. Not not that U.S. officials are ever convicted of international war crimes, but and it's cute to think that they would be. But we know from State Department memos that they were actually convinced, and I believe this is in Reuters. And uh, it was under the law of armed conflict, the same laws that were used to prosecute Charles Taylor, the Liberian leader for arming the factions that committed mass murder. Uh, so unless unless we're gonna go like free, start a free Charles Taylor campaign, I don't know how you could possibly not say that Barack Obama's administration and Donald Trump's administration would also be convicted under that same statute for arming a, a force that's committing mass murder. That's directly what they've been doing. Um, but Ben, uh, we, we've talked about Syria a, a, a lot and we are you know in the back half of the podcast closing in on our, our finish, but. Uh, as long as you have time, I have time. Uh, but I'd like to kind of condense some questions here. And can you, you wrote this great piece about 
the propaganda aspect of the Syrian civil war. Uh, and before we even get to that, though, and I do want to get to that very shortly, and we've discussed this already a little bit, but can you briefly, or not briefly if you want, sum up what exactly has the United States role been in the Syrian civil war? Because a lot of people are unfamiliar with this. They only get upset like every year, every few months when you hear troops might be pulling out of Syria or the U.S. might stop being involved in Syria without ever asking, well, what exactly is the United States doing in Syria? So if you could elaborate on that for us. Yeah, well, you know, we could spend another hour, three, five on this. So I'll try to keep it relatively short. But and for anyone who's interested in more, my colleague Max Blumenthal and I, we, we have a podcast, Moderate Rebels, and actually we did you know, I don't, I don't in any way want to boast, but I think it's kind of one of the more definitive podcast histories of the U.S. involvement in the war on Syria. It was actually our second and third podcast episode of Moderate Rebels, a two-parter, and we go through the history from, the, from before 2011 when the war began, before the protests began, going back to the 2000s, because we know with WikiLeaks cables that the U.S. was supporting anti-Assad opposition groups and cultivating forces. I mean, you could even go back but further. You can go back to the 1980s when the U.S. government in Turkey supported the Muslim Brotherhood in an armed uprising that led to a massive crush, you know, massive, you know, state crackdown where the state crushed the Muslim Brotherhood-led uprising in the 1980s and, and Hama. But the U.S. and Turkey supported that. So, Anyway, the point is that people can go check out those two podcast episodes at moderaterebels.com. But, and actually, even the name of our podcast is inspired partially by the war in Syria. It's, you know, it's tongue-in-cheek because every time the U.S. supports an extremist group, like, you know, people are calling it the, the beer belly putsch, like in on January 6th in D.C., at reference to the, the beer hall putsch in in Germany. Well, th- those, those kind of far-right forces, if they were in Ukraine or Bolivia or Venezuela, they have the support of the U.S. and they're called moderate rebels pretty universally if they're backed by the U.S. So anyway, so getting back to Syria here, you know, I mentioned that it goes back before WikiLeaks cables show, or rather State Department cables released by WikiLeaks show as documented in a really good book published by Verso that was... The kind of definitive look at each chapter. I believe the book is called the WikiLeaks Files, and and each chapter is written by a different contributor, and it's thematic. So one chapter in Venezuela, one chapter in Iraq, on Iran, Syria, and it goes through and looks at what the treasure trove of WikiLeaks documents show on that subject. And the chapter on Syria is quite good. And it goes back and looks at how in the 2000s, after Hafez al-Assad, the father, died and Bashar came in, Bashar was more of a reformer at first and wanted to try to win over Western capital and engage in some neoliberal reforms. And, and the U.S. was trying to cultivate him. But at the same time, the U.S. behind the scenes was supporting some of these Islamist-oriented opposition groups you know, it's often true for geopolitics is that these hegemonic powers will kind of like the U.S. will 
try to engage in diplomacy while in the background secretly supporting these groups because even if even though Bashar was more open to diplomacy than his father was the US still wanted a totally new regime because his government was not compliant enough and that led you know this is a similar period where at the beginning of the war on terror even Libya under Muammar Gaddafi, the idea, they, they, these governments thought that, okay, now that the U.S. has been stung by the 9-11 attacks and, ne and nearly 3,000 people died, maybe the U.S. Is, is finally going to get serious about fighting these Salafi jihadist groups. Maybe for once we can have a point of commonality. It doesn't mean they're, they certainly weren't allies. They still remained enemies. But for di diplomatic reasons, maybe we can find a commonality and Syria and Libya can maybe have a commonality with the U.S. with fighting their sh shared enemy, Al-Qaeda. Of course, that's not what at all what happened, and we know because of these WikiLeaks cables that the U.S. was supporting these groups behind the scenes. And then the, the so-called Arab Spring uprisings happen, these protests, some of, some of which were, you know, many of which in many countries had, like, legitimate elements of grievances against neoliberal policies. In Syria, there were some neoliberal policies, although I should mention that of all of the countries in the Middle East, Syria had some of the fewest neoliberal reforms. It had some, but Syria still has some of the most state intervention in the economy. It still guarantees health care for its citizens for free and education and other policies that are not guaranteed in many other countries in the Middle East that are Western proxies. And But there are these protests some of which were young people who wanted more democratic reforms, some of which were people like farmers protesting against a, a drought. And then there, were, there was always from the very beginning a hardcore, maybe not the majority, but a significant element, maybe even half of Salafi jihadist extremists. And this was acknowledged even in some mainstream media reports from the, from the very beginning of the protests in Syria and in some other countries, as we saw in Egypt, where the, the Islamists played a key role, in, in Syria, the many Islamists were protesting the government for, not, for being too secular and too progressive on social cultural issues. Syria had some of the highest representation of women in government. And this is not to say, this is not to say that Syria is some great utopia. I mean, the Syrian government has been very brutal. It, it's been it's engaged wide in widespread torture, and you know this is a country that hold on. It's ben, not a can democratic I, can country. Can I interject quickly? Uh, you mentioned torture. First, I'll interrupt your Assadist rant here. I'm just kidding, but uh, uh, when we say torture, it is important to note that some of that torture was done in service of the United States too. You know, there's this. I forgot the name of the Canadian the rendition. Citizen. Yeah, extraordinary rendition. Yeah. So Assad had been helping the United States, helping the United States, and torturing suspected terrorists and there's a horrible story of this canadian citizen who was uh, rendition uh, in other words kidnapped and sent to syria and tortured and uh actually i i know he was released i don't know if he ever got to settle a lawsuit against the united states or what but that that nuance is important but uh i will let you continue that that story about the the protest being hijacked by islamists well look the reality is that torture is practiced by all of these governments in in Western Asia, the Middle East. I mean, maybe not Lebanon because it's such a weak state, but let's talk about Jordan and the Muhabarat. That's the Arabic word for like the security forces, which are very feared in Jordan. 
you know, look, Jordan is portrayed in Western media as like some positive, moderate country, but it's absolutely a draconian police state and a dictatorship. It's a constitutional monarchy, but it's a dictatorship. It's run by a king. I mean, come on. And the pe- people in Jordan are very afraid of speaking out on most political issues. Palestine might be the only issue where the government allows a little dissent because they know they can't crack down too hard. Even though the government collaborates closely with apartheid Israel, they know the vast majority of Jordanians support Palestine, so they can't, you know, they can't crack down. But otherwise, on political issues, if you're a dissident in Jordan, you're going to be kidnapped and tortured. Back in, and meanwhile, I remember reading an article in the Christian Science Monitor about a movie. I think it was with Leonardo DiCaprio. I've never seen the movie, but it, it was like some propaganda that the Jordanian regime was involved in the production of, and it like heroizes the Jordanian Muhabarat. And I should mention that, by the way, in Syria, which is often called a police state, and like I said, you know, all of these countries in the region are largely undemocratic governments with very heavy police forces, and that's often because they're so afraid of coup attempts, given the history of Western coup attempts and destabilization. But by the way, in Syria, they're also called the Muqabarat. But the difference is that Muqabarat in Jordan are good, whereas the Muqabarat in Syria are bad. I mean, come on, it's it's so infantile. And we're not allowed to even have a basic discussion about things like this, or you're called an Assadist, right? I mean, but anyway, the point is that it was acknowledged from day one that that among the protesters... You know, there were, like I said, there were some liberal-minded progressives. A lot of, you know, I some I know some young people who participated and who actually regret participating in the protest because of how much damage has been done to Syria. But, you know, they got kind of misled by propaganda. Al Jazeera played a huge role. Al Jazeera being a mouthpiece for the Qatari monarchy, another brutal dictatorship. And played a huge role in pushing propaganda and f- sometimes fake news for all of these protest movements. And it, from day one, there were hardcore right-wing Islamist elements in Syria. And then they began c- carrying out acts of violence. They, c- they began killing police, killing state security forces, burning down government buildings. This has been all acknowledged in mainstream corporate media outlets like Reuters and the AP very early on in the conflict. All that was erased. And then there was this narrative that was created Ironically, the narrative didn't really solidify until like 2014 or 2015 of the evil regime waging war on its people. Assad is killing his own people and the peaceful, peace-loving moderate rebels on the other side. Ironically, if you read the media reports from like 2011 and 2012, there was actually a little more nuance acknowledging the extreme violence carried out from very early on by the opposition forces. And then they started taking over areas and ethnically cleansing religious and ethnic minorities. And that leads us to the the so-called liberated areas like Raqqa, which became, which was one of the only liberated, so-called liberated state capitals. There were only three state capitals that were ever taken out of the hands of the government in Syria. Raqqa, which became the caliphate of ISIS, the cap, the global capital of ISIS, Idlib, which is now the largest haven for Al-Qaeda since 9-11, and then Aleppo. And Aleppo also had a lot of extremist elements. So 
the we also know now it's incontrovertible there was a document published by the defense intelligence agency the dia very early in the conflict acknowledging i believe it's from 2012 it was declassified acknowledging that the dia knew that the driving force behind the insurgency in syria and again this is the beginning of the war were Salafi jihadist groups and also the Muslim Brotherhood. To be a little fair, the Muslim Brotherhood is not Salafi jihadist. They have a kind of more conservative, right-wing, bourgeois democratic worldview. Salafi jihadists want to create an Islamic state. They don't believe in democracy, at least bourgeois capitalist democracy like the Muslim Brotherhood does. But, But they acknowledged, the DIA acknowledged that those were the driving forces. The DIA also acknowledged, they, they rather they they presage they they foreshadowed they predicted the rise of an islamic caliphate based in raqqa this was in 2012 so the u.s intelligence agencies knew what they were doing they knew they were empowering al-qaeda and extremist salafi jihadists as i mentioned jake sullivan hillary clinton's top advisor now Biden's national security advisor published an email in 2012 saying Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. It's an exact quote. And then, surprise, surprise, Al-Qaeda metastasizes across the country and this new group called the Islamic State emerges. And the CIA played a key role in that. And we now know that the so-called Free Syrian Army, as even mainstream academics like Mark Lynch who wrote a book on the Arab Spring. He's a D.C.-based academic, very mainstream liberal Democrat, total, you know, he supported the war, mainstream guy. He acknowledged in his book on the Arab Spring, which I cite in some of my reporting, he acknowledged that the FSA was more of a media creation than anything in reality. That, that's basically, paraphrasing, that's basically what he said. Again, a, a, a mainstream Democrat who supported the war, The FSA never really existed. It was media branding created by Western governments. Also, by the way, the the report that I filed recently looking at more declassified documents shows how that that marketing campaign, the PR campaign, was carried out by Western government contractors, these firms that were paid tens of millions of dollars by the U.S. government, by Britain, by the Netherlands, other countries, and they created the names for these groups they created the symbols and logos for these groups they helped rehabilitate the french colonial flag that was used by the syrian opposition every single little detail was micromanaged the parallel government in exile like the kind of like one guaido shadow regime of syria they were advised and created by these western cutouts and and the CIA, I mentioned, Edward Snowden's Edward Snowden released documents. Unfortunately, we only ever saw three percent of them because the Intercept shut down the archive, and we're probably never going to see the other ninety-seven percent. But of the Edward Snowden documents leaked, the Washington Post reported again a, a clearly a, a communist Assadist mouthpiece. These tankies at the Washington Post, they published an article acknowledging based on a document from Edward Snowden that the CIA was spending around $1 billion per year. And that's just on the books, by the way. We should keep in mind that 
the CIA has a, a notorious black budget. No one really knows. Very few people really know what the CIA's re real budget is. It's, it's theoretically infinite because the CIA uses organized crime to fund its operations so it can ha maintain plausible deniability, so it can carry out some of these illegal actions and avoid paperwork. As we know, the CIA did in the 1980s with the Contras in Nicaragua, support using drug, drug money to fund these terror death squads that are very similar to the terror death squads in Syria. The, the difference is that they have Islam in Syria, but they share very similar ideologies. And in what regions of the world are political dissidents regularly beheaded? Well, it's Syria and Iraq under ISIS and these groups, and then it's in Colombia under these death, paramilitary death squads backed by the Colombian government. So there's a lot of political parallels there you can point to and the tactics. But anyway, the point is that the CIA used drug money. We, know, we now know, thanks to the reporting of Gary Webb, the reporter whose career was destroyed for factually reporting on the rat line where the CIA took cocaine money or took sold cocaine from Colombia to and used used it to to fund and and by the way flooded black poor black neighborhoods in largely in the United States and California creating the crack cocaine epidemic and then using that money to fund the contras in Nicaragua we also know that the CIA and intelligence agencies and military have a history of something similar in Vietnam and Southeast Asia with a, a heroin rat line in the heroin triangle there, which also led to mass addiction among U.S. troops in the Vietnam War. And then we now know in Afghanistan that that the heroin production, opium production, which is used for heroin, has skyrocketed since the military occupation began in 2001. So the point is that we know that the CIA has this history of of a of a black budget, and they can they have infinite money. They so we don't even aside from the documented one billion dollars per year. Who knows how much they spent in Syria? But there are so many reports by mainstream NGOs and even some backed by European governments because European governments have been a little not much but a little more critical in the aftermath, now that the, the military element of the war in Syria is largely over, excluding Idlib, they've produced some reports acknowledging that ISIS had very significant weapons caches that were U.S.-made weapons, German-made weapons, other European weapons, acknowledging that the FSA acted as a kind of weapons farm for al-Qaeda and ISIS, where, you know, the U.S. would train these so-called moderate rebels in southern Turkey and in Jordan, and then they would go into Syria and they would immediately join al-Qaeda or ISIS. And most comically, now we have the current new Secretary of Defense under Biden. Well, he, Lloyd Austin, a few years ago, he did a congressional hearing on the war in Syria in which he he was asked about this and it was it's comical I mean it's like a it's like a satire first tragedy second time farce right but in this hearing Lloyd Austin is asked about what he did with with 50 million dollars I believe or with tens of millions of dollars in this training program supposedly to train thousands of so-called moderate rebels in Syria and he says well um you know he's like a He's like scratching his head and kind of like pulling at his collar. Well, uh, um, yeah, we we trained, you know, we have we have 50 or 60. He's, he said like it's very soft spoken. We have 50 or 60. 
And one of the Congress people's like, wait, can you speak up? What'd you say? I, he said 50 or 60. And, and they said, wait, 50 or 60,000? And he says, no, 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 no. 50 or 60 people were trained by the mod. We had we trained 50 or 60 moderate rebels. He spent tens of millions of dollars and got 50 or 60 moderate rebels. I mean, absolutely preposterous. And there's just so many layers of scandal there. And I could spend so much time talking about this, but that was already a long enough answer. And, and it just... That's just scratching the surface of how scandalous this war is. Yeah, and it, it should be a huge scandal because we're quite literally talking about, directly or indirectly, that the United States knowingly flooded weapons into a opposition force that was directly that was mostly made up of self-proclaimed jihadists, uh, Al Qaeda, Al Nusra, and and a hundred other groups that are uh, different flavors of, of Al Qaeda, and you you would think this would be a huge scandal, but it's not. Um, and I do want to be respectful of your time, Ben. Do you have uh, a remaining ten minutes to to kind of yeah, close out here? Good. So first of all, I want to recommend that everyone goes and reads your article at the Gray Zone that really talks about this the propaganda campaign. You you spoke on it a little bit, but this was a massive not just arming and training program, but a propaganda program. So the name of the article is Leaked Docs Exposed Massive Syria Propaganda Operation Waged by Western Government Contractors and Media. And I, I really encourage everyone to read that because, uh, you know, you know, as long as this war has been going on, it really gets such terrible coverage in the West. And the, the gray zone is really one of the only outlets that is covering this aspect of the war. And ironically, we got a little bit of insight to this by some mainstream accounts last year, you know, regards to arming jihadist militias, but not because the U.S. was arming them. This was after the program you mentioned before, that that's Timber Sycamore, the billion dollar a year arming and training program. After it was over in 20, I believe 2017, last year we got some insight into, whoa, a lot of these same militias are doing these horrible things to Kurds and slaughtering the Kurds. Yeah. And they're, they were the exact same groups that were that were armed by the U.S. earlier in this war, and uh, they just switched their uh, their patron from the United States to Turkey, their benefactor, I should say, and suddenly there was this outrage, and and this was not you guys reported on it, but even like the Intercept reported on it, and uh, you know it, it's like we we're only outraged at jihadist violence when it can be useful, the the that outrage can be useful, and you know it is very. I, telling. I, I got to say really quickly because you mentioned that Mehdi Hassan acknowledged that, but. It was he was cribbing an article that Max wrote. My colleague Max Blumenthal found a report from some Western NGO. I mean, like a mainstream group that acknowledged that more than half of the groups in the so-called TFSA, the Turkish-backed Syrian Turkish Free Syrian Army, which is just like a these Salafi jihadist mercenaries who embedded with the Turkish Army, and many of them were from Al Qaeda and other groups. More than half of them came from so-called moderate rebel groups backed, armed and trained by the U.S. And Max Blumenthal reported that. And then Mehdi Hassan just cited the same report without any credit, without crediting him. That's amazing. They're moderate rebels when they fight on the side of the U.S. They are violent militias when they fight for Turkey and uh, and they give the U.S. bad PR. Uh, So... Ben, I want to close out here by c combining a couple of questions. So 
first of all, I have a ton of respect for you because unlike many Western mainstream journalists, you actually endeavor to hear stories from people who are affected by U.S. imperialism, as in on the ground in countries that are targeted by the U.S. military sanctions, intelligence services. So you've traveled to Colombia, Venezuela, you live in Nicaragua. Um, And I assume that's affected your worldview uh, on how we should talk about these issues. Um, And so that must affect the way you view U.S. media, because here in the U.S. we're bombarded with news of alleged human rights abuses, acts of aggression, etc., by official enemies of the U.S. As someone that's talked to people in so many countries that have been the subject to American imperialist violence, how do you advise news consumers whose knee-jerk reactions may be to condemn a you know, country X for alleged abuses, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Uyghurs in China or, you know, alleged gas attacks in Syria, uh, or, you know, go back to the 90s, Saddam Hussein's alleged abuses. And, you know, you know, it's ranging to, you know, Cuba incarcerating people. And why is it so important to counter this kind of propaganda or even, you know, some, some of these stories might be true, but why is it so important to counter these claims about other countries and how, and how should we proceed to counter these arguments? This is a really good question. It's something I think about a lot and I'll try to keep the answer short. I know I keep saying that and then I bloviate, but it's difficult because the reality is that when we talk about imperialism, we talk about anti-imperialism, on the left there's often this concept historically of critical support where they say that there's certain governments and certain political movements that are worthy of of critical support, meaning you know they're better than the alternative, but there's issues, so there's critical support. But the problem with the first part of that, the critical part, is that, yeah, I agree that sometimes that there should be criticism when it's based on actual facts. And I'll get to that in a second, because oftentimes some of these claims are not based on facts. But when they are, criticism is sometimes, you know, something that that is justified. But it's so easy for that criticism to be weaponized by the by the empire, by imperialists, by liberal interventionists. So it's a very difficult thing. And it's a fine line that I try to to tread. So taking an example, taking the example of Syria, I mean, as I just acknowledged in, in my talk there, you know, people call you an Assadist if you acknowledge the reality that, pe- that the majority of Syrians would rather live in a secular government that maintains equal rights for women, for all religious and ethnic minority groups, that has some forms of social support in terms of healthcare, etc., that has large subsidies for food and things like that. But at the same time, I mean, we can acknowledge, of course, that this is not a democracy, that the country definitely has, you know, a history of repression. You know, you can acknowledge all those things, but I think it has to be done in a way, like I just said, where it has to be done in a way that actually balances it. You know, the media talks about balance, but they they never actually balance it. All they'll do is just talk about how evil Russia and Syria and Venezuela and all these countries are. They'll very rarely acknowledge all of the amazing, the good things that Venezuela has done. Or all of the, you know, the, the positive things that, you know, despite the many issues, there are positive things that the Iranian government has accomplished, that the Russian government, even the current, you know, capitalist 
neoliberal government has accomplished compared to Boris Yeltsin, the the drunk Western puppet who who waged a war against his own parliament. He bombed his own parliament. And we're supposed to believe Putin is the authoritarian compared to Clinton's puppet, the West's favorite drunk, Boris Yeltsin. So that criticism always has to be tempered by, tempered is the wrong word, it has to be actually be balanced with an understanding. And it has to be from the understanding of people who actually live in these countries. Because so many people loved in the, in the US and Western Europe in Canada love to be these these armchair political scientists who talk who wax poetic on the idea of liberating people from their oppressive regime when they, they don't have to live there they don't have to deal with the consequences of living in Idlib of living in Afghanistan in the 1980s of living in Bolivia under the coup regime which we were all told Evo Morales was a dictator and he he lost his support pretty surprising that we were told he lost his support and then his party got 55% of the vote in the first round. That's pretty impressive to me. So it, it's, it's, it, it always has to be done in that way with the understanding that criticism is not done in a vacuum and that you can also have private criticisms and public criticisms. In fact, everyone in every institution, this isn't even just political, if you have issues with your parents, there's things you don't tell them and there's things you do tell them. If you have issue with your friends, with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, if you have issues with your boss, your colleagues, or if you have issues with your government or your political party or your friends, I mean, you always have public and private criticism. And there's things you can talk about with your colleague or your boss or whatever in public that you would never acknowledge publicly in private that you never acknowledge publicly. And that's the same with these with political, it's even more sensitive, obviously, with political issues. So people need to have a little discipline and stop worrying about like, it's so, it just shows the kind of liberal mentality. Everyone's always worried about how they're perceived and what the, their personal brand is. And like, they don't wanna be, I mean, I, I don't like, of course I don't like being smeared, but it's more important to me to actually challenge power, challenge empire, and educate people on these issues, and and you know be an actual independent, principled voice. That's more important to me than throwing out like the than reciting the bromides, the the often very vacuous and frankly fallacious bromides that we're we we all we have to say that it's a it's an evil dictatorship the regime i mean i hate that term regime i try to only use it actually to refer to uh, you know ironically to the us regime the saudi regime because it's it's another propaganda term you know i'm i'm kind of just ranting here and just kind of just going stream of consciousness but the last thing i'll say is that the other reality of this answer is that a lot of these claims are just not true in, in the case of Syria, of China, of Venezuela. It's not to, it's not to say these countries don't have many problems. They do, and, and I have acknowledged some of them just now, and I've acknowledged some of them in my reporting and interviews. But the reality is that there's a difference between acknowledging and providing balance 
to some of these criticisms and then just totally buying every single fake criticism, fake accusation levied at these countries by Western propaganda. In the case of China with Xinjiang, where it's just, you now have people like C.J. Worleman, I mean, just such a cartoonish propagandist, where, and plagiarist, by the way, who he wrote this insane article claiming that China is engaged in a final solution, murdering one third of the Uyghur population, imprisoning one third, and like, I don't even, expelling one third, I don't remember what he claimed. I mean, and you read his insane article, and he acknowledges that there's no actual evidence, and it's all based on some one one person's claims, totally unverifiable claims. I mean, just preposterous. And you know, the babies in incubators. People remember, remember, right? Remember, people might remember that when Iraq invaded Kuwait. This is very infamous, but it's been erased from a lot of, especially younger people's historical consciousness. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, by the way after the US, the U.S. ambassador gave the green light for that and then used it as an excuse to attack Iraq and carry out brutal civilian bombing campaigns that destroyed Iraqi civilian infrastructure, hospitals, bridges, roads, massacred people who were trying to flee as they were fleeing on the so-called highway of death. But anyway, the point is that to justify that war under George H.W. Bush, the, the daddy of the deep state, former CIA director turned president. In order to justify that war, the U.S. government spread lies based that claiming that Iraqi soldiers were going into Kuwaiti hospitals and removing Kuwaiti babies from incubators and leaving them on the ground to die for some reason, just because they're sadistic, bloodthirsty mass murderers. Of course, that claim came from a little girl named Naira, who gave it as a congressional testimony. What was not acknowledged in the congressional hearing was that her dad, as was later disclosed, was the Kuwaiti ambassador to the U.S., and it was all organized by a PR campaign, a PR company. Totally fake. So that's another example of how total fake, it's not, it's not a legitimate criticism, it's fake. And then we can go to, of course, WMDs, the Gulf of Tonkin. We can talk about the claims that Muammar Gaddafi, Certainly an eccentric leader, you know, not a perfect leader, but he oversaw the, the most prosperous country in Africa that guaranteed health care for all citizens, subsidized housing for all citizens, equal rights for women. He, by the way, he was the only leader in Libya's post-colonial history. I mean, he led a, a revolution against a colonial dictatorship and Ever since then, ever since NATO killed him and destroyed his government in 2011, for 10 years, NATO, uh, Libya has had a failed state in a civil war. But anyway, the point is that to justify that war that unleashed slavery in, in un, un, open-air slave markets in Libya, it was sold on another lie. The lie that Gaddafi was giving Viagra to his soldiers to rape women. An insane lie. So another example of how these things are not true. So again, I I did acknowledge that sometimes part of a critical support is you can acknowledge, you know, that the Venezuelan government has some issues, the Nicaraguan government has some issues, all of these. But one, that criticism must always be 
balanced with an understanding of the very positive things many of these governments have done for their people. So you don't feed into these Western black and white propaganda narratives. And then two, you need to be able to, to distinguish the justified real criticism from the cartoonish, ridiculous propaganda. And the reality is that, unfortunately, a lot of people on the left in the U.S., they just believe the cartoonish propaganda. And then if you don't recite it like communion, like they're like Catholic priests. I was raised Catholic, so it's just beaten into me. Like if if you don't recite it and, and confess to those crimes supposedly committed by these evil tanky regimes, then you're an Assadist. Then you're a Stalinist or whatever. I mean... It's it's pretty preposterous, and it shows how deep that kind of anti-communist knee-jerk knee-jerk reaction to anything the U.S. government accuses, and and wanting to just be on the good side of the liberal intelligentsia. That's still really deeply embedded into a lot of the U.S. left, and that's why, frankly, we're so, we're so hated so much is because we don't do that. The virtue signaling. I mean, that, that term has been kind of abused by the right, but it's a useful term. And a lot of that stuff is virtue signaling and when we're not interested in it. That's a great place to kind of close out here. And I know we're, we're over your time, but I, I just want to comment before we go on some really interesting things that you said. And uh, it's amazing to me that so many people nominally on the left will acknowledge that, yeah, those past wars were based on lies, but surely they're not lying today, right? That even as recently as like the WMDs, that surely Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. We know we were lied to, but we should definitely believe any crazy propaganda about Iran's nuclear weapons or Syrian gas attacks. And the other thing I want to say is, so you talked about balancing out the criticism I, I, with the positive aspects of, of alleged enemy governments. I would also say acknowledge the incredible role that the United States has played in creating some of these alleged some of the human rights abuses, alleged human rights abuses in these countries. And what I mean by that is, you know, from the second the Soviet Union came into existence, it was invaded by not just the United States but uh, something like fifteen other countries, right? Yeah. I've seen 22, the estimate. Yeah, and, and the idea that we don't understand that the United States constantly intervening in these other countries extreme in extremely violent ways might create a repressive country. I mean, look how the United States reacts after 9-11. Not to minimize that, but that's nothing compared to the violence inflicted on other countries, both covert and overt. So like when we say- On 9-11 every day. Yeah, yeah, for World War II, but the Soviets, absolutely. And- well, no, I'm saying that U.S. imperialism for other countries is a 9-11 every day often. Right. If we're talking about Yemen or Iran or Venezuela. And the constant threat of sub- subversion. Uh, like, imagine Castro didn't run a, tight, uh, a, an ex- a security state. Imagine he allowed uh, any kind of, of uh, expression that might be tied to U.S. infiltration. Because we know they were trying to infiltrate their elections, their media. So it's like acknowledge the role that the United States has played in creating these situations. And I'll just end with, I am not a China expert. I am not a, a Syrian expert. Uh, I have never been to China or Syria and, or, or any of these countries that we're talking about, actually. Uh, and I don't know what's going on on the ground uh, with the Uyghurs. I don't know what's going on with the gas attack. I've seen some really great writing about both of those at the gray zone uh, with the gas attacks, especially from, from your uh, colleague Aaron Maté. And I'm, I'm very convinced uh, that we need to be skeptical. 
However, what I do know is that my government does not care about Uyghur Muslims. I know that my government does not care about Muslims in Syria. I know that my government has spent the last 20 years killing millions of Muslims, torturing them, displacing tens of millions of them. So this idea that the United States government cares about the plight of Muslims in China or in Syria is should be dismissed out of hand. It's just ridiculous. I do know that my government is trying to destabilize China. I know that in 2018, the National Defense uh, Report, or whatever it's called, uh, decided great power competition is the new goal. So I know they're trying to destabilize China. I know that the United States supported the East Turkestan Islamic movement to destabilize China. And I know, as you said, they've been trying to destabilize Syria, arguably since the 90s. You know, go back to what's the PNAC for... Uh, Project for New American Century, coping with crumbling states. They've wanted to get rid of the Syrian government forever. And lastly, I know that my government is by far the most powerful, most violent force in human history. So I, I'll end with this metaphor other people the, I've used before on the podcast. I have a very friendly dog. She's extremely friendly. She's a little, she's a little rambunctious, but she's not going to bite anybody ever. And so I don't have to spend a whole lot of time restraining my dog. Uh, making sure that she behaves herself around people because I know she's not going to hurt anybody. However, if I owned a 200-pound Doberman pic Pinscher with a history of violence, I would have to restrain that dog and be very uh, cautious about letting that dog loose. And by repeating CIA, and I know that's a strained metaphor, but by repeating State Department CIA talking points regarding other countries, we are turning our country loose. We're giving our government consent to commit massive acts of violence and other people around the world. And I know that was a long ending here, but uh, Ben, I, I do want to give you a chance. Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, and is there anything new you'd like to promote um, and, and anything that the Gray Zone's working on that you'd like people to know about? Well, I just want to say that was really well said. The reality is, you know, even I didn't even mention the fact that, look, as Americans, our responsibility is is combating U.S. imperialism and holding this government that claims to be democratic accountable. And that's our fundamental responsibility. And people around the world, they want us to lift our government's boot off of their neck. So our our, our criticism doesn't matter to them. It, what matters is in the, in the actual impact, tangible impact we can and should have is being able to stop or help to curtail that imperial aggression. But the reality is that the left is weak and the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement is weak. So it's something we have to build. But finally, to answer your question, people can find me at The Gray Zone. That's thegrayzone.com. That's gray with an A, the Yankee spelling. And you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Norton. And I'm on some other platforms as well i'm trying to diversify because of social media censorship which is a whole other topic and as i mentioned in this episode i have a podcast with my colleague max blumenthal who's the founder and editor of the gray zone our show is called moderate rebels and you can find that on youtube the video version but you can also find the audio version on a bunch of different podcast platforms and and thanks for this show i mean I, i'm I was really glad to have the space and to be able to, you know, flesh out some of these ideas and to talk about history and keep up the good work. I'm, I'm glad there's other people out there who are focusing on imperialism in this with this critical lens. 
Yeah, that means so much, Ben. And yeah, I cannot encourage people enough to check out The Gray Zone. Check out Moderate Rebels. Check out uh, Max Blumenthal's book, Management of Savagery. It's great. Definitely check out all the articles Ben writes at The Gray Zone. Uh, check out Aaron Mate's show, Pushback. Uh, Gareth Porter's writing's great. Anya Parampel's great. I, the whole project is just just an amazing takedown of, of these horrible CIA and State Department talking points we've been hearing so much of. So check him out and i really appreciate you being here ben and uh definitely take care and next time i do want to get some of your uh takes on living in nicaragua and that country's history because we didn't even get to touch on that so we'll have to do that another time but have a great week and we'll have you back on some other time take it easy thanks thanks for having me look look forward to coming back